Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with the creator of Freaky Stories, Steve Schneer. We talk about the creation of the show, how the Mun Men made the decisions, riding up to kids, and why the show came to an end. Stay tuned. Steve Schneer, welcome to the podcast. Why, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Great to have you. Um, so, uh, for our listeners at home, could you just tell us what was Freaky Stories? What was the show all about? Freaky Stories was an anthology of weird stories. Some of them were urban legends. Mm-hmm. Many of them were things that happened to me and my sisters when we were growing up. That was <laughs> that was a big source of it. A lot of it was my dysfunctional family, and it wound up uh, as a TV show. And there would be four episodes in every in every half hour, and they were hosted by a cockroach and a maggot. Essentially, I like to describe it describe it as Twilight Zone for kids. And Larry and Maurice were my Rod Serling. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. And Larry and Maurice are currently flanking you behind you to yes. your back left. Fortunately, this is a podcast, so you can't yeah, really see can't them. See but them. Yeah. Oh, well, but I can see them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the puppets were an essential part of the show. But I mean, when you were coming up with this, you know, this this anthology show for kids, were was Larry the Bug, Debug, and Maurice the Maggot essentially part of it from the beginning? Or did they no. come into it halfway through? No, no, through? no, no. What happened, if we want to get right back to the very beginning, is... Yeah. Um, I had gone to Sheridan College for animation. I, when I graduated, I had worked my way through Sheridan at a boutique animation studio called Sonera Productions. There were two very successful studios. It was Sonera and Animation House. And we, we sort of socialized and all that, but we really didn't work together. Um, Sonera, the year after I graduated, I I was offered a job there. I was the studio kid and the owner of the studio had this incredible philosophy where everyone had to know everyone else's job. And he ran it like a German submarine in World War II. That was his, and sometimes he'd have his German submarine commandant's hat on. Um, Wow. Okay. He he was really, he was a great guy. Um, Uh, and so I got a better education working for him than I did at Sheridan College. And what happened was about a year or so after I graduated, I was still working at Sonera and the studio went down. You know, these studios had a lifespan of five or six years. That was it. Very, very quick up on top for three or four years and then crash. And so I was out in the street with a lot of technical knowledge, a lot of artistic knowledge. And rather than looking for a job, I started knocking on doors. I'd say, hey, you need a TV commercial. You need a TV commercial. And I was selling TV commercials. I was just producing the commercials and they could do their own media buys. And it was a great little business. And what happened there was there was an optical house that no longer exists. They had optical printers and like heavy duty stuff that you can do on your iPhone now, but huge, huge expensive machines. And I had a deal with them that uh, they were doing all the optical work for all the commercials in Canada. So Monday they'd phone me up. They say, Steve, we have a commercial for you. And I run down, I get the assignment Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I do the artwork Friday, take it in. We'd shoot it for 11 o'clock, had to be shot by 11 o'clock because at 11 o'clock it went to the lab for processing. So it caught the 11 o'clock run and then delivered it. Uh, The following week, there'd be a check for me, but the following Monday, Steve, we got a commercial for you. And that was my job. You know, I wasn't on staff. It was strictly freelance. And uh, I bought a house, you know, this is, we're talking over 30 years ago where a freelance artist and uh, a secretary could buy a house in the city. Right. Unthinkable today, but that's the way it was. So my wife and I bought a house and, um, and uh, what happened was everything's fine. You know, this is great, 
until my literally my 30th birthday. And I was doing a commercial for Pepto-Bismol. And they had the the artwork of the cutaway human being. And they had the the esophagus and the stomach and yeah. matted into the stomach is a stormy sea with a uh, with a sailing ship being tossed in the waves. And I mm-hmm. animated the Pepto-Bismol going down the esophagus. Yeah. Right. The pink liquid the running pink, down yeah. the esophagus. It, it, yeah. it wasn't they didn't really pour it. They had somebody animate. It. So they had me animate it. And I'm sitting there in a screening room at a major agency on Bloor Street. And they're talking mm-hmm. about the viscosity of the liquid. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, my God, this is my life. I'm 30 years old and it's a major commercial and they're paying me very well. But my right. God, I can't do this anymore. And I started to <laughs> laugh. I'm sitting there and they're looking at me. And I said, I can't do this. See you guys. Check, please. <laughs> and they handed me my check. And I walked out and I came home. I said to my wife, I can't do this anymore. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I was meant to make, to tell stories. And so, you know, uh, I got out of the commercial business. It mm-hmm. sort of petered off. Um, but I, I started to conceptualize what became Freaky Stories. stories took 10 years oh okay eight eight ten years to to happen from the time i can conceived it till the time that it got on the air was a long period because i didn't know what i was doing i was trying to do everything myself so what happened was um i started i had the idea and i i made a short like this nasty little short um, shot it on 35 millimeter film, you know, it was all finished, great little special effects. Um, and I had to write a pitch for the show and I'd never seen a pitch for a show. The only thing I knew about writing for television, the Bible, and we're talking over 30, you know, 30 years ago, the Bible for everybody was the making of Star Trek. Oh, okay. <laughs> Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. But oh, I, okay. I, I listen to a I listen to a podcast where they constantly talk about the Star Trek Bible, and they, they well, kind of well, make fun of it a little bit. Well, this was this is the making of Star Trek, and anybody of my generation who wanted to get into TV or movies, this was the only book there was. There was nothing else. So they talked about a pitch Bible, and I didn't understand what a pitch Bible was or anything. So I needed to order my thoughts and the only thing that came to mind remember the stupid five paragraph essay they made you write in uh in junior yeah, high school I remember that. bertrand russell's three yeah. passions blah 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 i didn't even remember what it was called but i went to the library and i asked the librarian because there were no computers back then right so i went to the library and i sort of said you know three passions she's oh bertrand russell's introduction to his autobiography and i photocopied it and i came home and i wrote it out like my idea in that thing so my pitch for freaky stories was one page that that was it and this little video that i had made and i took it i sent it to ctv and i got a pretty nasty letter back from them i took it (laughs) how so what did they say Ah, uh, it was like like inappropriate the, or something. Yeah, like that, yeah, or? it was inappropriate. Basically, uh, there was a cover letter saying, uh, "Dear Steve, thank you for submitting this," and mm-hmm. it had stapled to it my original, my original letter, uh, where the executive had scrawled, "Send this shit back," right? And okay. she stapled. You know, it's like, oh, you know, that that was quite the rejection. I took it to the CBC. And uh, it was a very bizarre meeting where they had some executive who didn't want to do the show, but he said, but if you do a show, a newscast of exactly one year from today, 
Okay. Uh, uh, no. It's like, think. what? Yeah, like, did you hear? No. You know, okay. And then uh, I went to YTV, and Freaky mm-hmm. Stories was never a kid's show. It was never intended to be a kid's show. And we never wrote it as a kid's show. So, okay, make a kid's show. Took it to YTV. And the pilot that I made was the story of the hook. And it was completely graphic. You know, when it says he'd rip off your heads and there'd be um, heads in the refrigerator. You know, he had all these heads. And there was like a shot of a refrigerator and there's blood dripping out, animated blood dripping out and coming forward on the floor. And then somebody opens the fridge and we cut away before you see the heads. And uh, the executive of YTV, uh, Merv Stone, may he rest in peace. We made a deal. He said, uh, you can do whatever you want, anything you want, but I have to be able to show it to families during the dinner hour. Okay. And he said, shake. And I said, shake. (laughs) And he said, do what you want. And that was it. That, and okay. they gave me a um, a broadcast letter, which you take to Telefilm, and Telefilm's going to give you development money and uh, yeah, artic- and all that. Oh no, they don't. They <laughs> they were nasty, nasty. I said, "Hi, I'm here. Here's my broadcast letter." It's like we don't know you. Okay, right. So it was that led to uh, a number of years of me trying all sorts of crazy things to get the thing financed. And finally, after two or three years of putting up with me, YTV gave me 90 days. And I was, you know, find uh, an executive producer who can do it. And like, so I'm running, at this point, I was working at Nelvana and I had taken it to the brass at Nelvana. And they said, well, we'll consider it. And I had 90 days and on day 86, they said no. And it's like, I'm dead. Or maybe it was day 87. I had like three days. And so I'm literally in the hallway crying. And uh, somebody says, oh, too bad. You should have spoken to John Dalmage. He gets things done. And then somebody else says, Steve, what's wrong? I said, oh, tell them the story of my life. And they say, you should have spoken to John Dalmage. He gets things done. Yeah, I know, I should have... And then somebody else says, Steve, what's wrong? I said, blah, blah, blah. You know, and they said, oh, you should have spoken to John Dalmage. He gets things... And I said, where's his fucking number? Right? <laughs> and so I ran up right. to my office, and I phoned him. I said, hi, Mr. Dalmage, my name's Steve Shear, blah, 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 blah. And he says, I'm in a meeting right now. I said, so you're in your office? He says, yes, I am. Right. right. I dropped the phone, raced across town. Bang, I opened the door. I said, which one of you is Dalmage? literally like that and john looks up he says i'm john i said hi i'm steve he (laughs) says you must be (laughs) right i gave him the package and he said i'll get back to you okay right and so day 87 88 89 day 90 comes i don't hear anything i wrote a nice letter to the people at ytv thanking them for all their patience Figured I'd go across the parking lot, drop it off on my way out. Uh, five o'clock comes. That was the cutoff. You know, that's the end of my life. Um, and I put on my jacket to leave. Phone rings. It's John Dalmage. He says, yeah, we're on. I already called YTV. We're good. Okay. Right. And for the rest of Freaky Stories, for the rest of the production, I carried the letter in my briefcase. You know, just a nice reminder. I yeah, guess. nice yeah. reminder of how close it came. And there were so many times where it was like the last minute we're going to fall off the cliff, and then mm. the thing, the thing happened. So, what year would have that have all sort of taken place? This would have been ninety four, ninety five. Okay, yeah. so I was wondering actually if we can sort of go back in time around that time yeah. to the summer of 1995, which was sort of before the pilot of Freaky Stories showed up on YTV's Dark Knight. We 3. were making the pilot, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, what what was that time like? What were you guys? It was doing? insane. Yeah. I, I took a, le- a leave of absence from Delvana. They they very nicely gave me the leave of absence. I went to in the same neighborhood. Uh, there was 
film opticals where I was doing my special effects as a freelancer gave me a room. And it was actually two rooms that I rented from them. And my original concept for Freaky, uh, and they, they air it occasionally, uh, where you didn't have full animation. It was just illustrated graphics. Yeah, sort of Ken Burns style. Ken Burns style, before Ken yeah. Burns. Um, and that's what I wanted it to be. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to hire artists from all over Canada, assign mm-hmm. them a story. You do the art, we'll put it together, bang, bang, bang. And sort of like a, a commercial National Film Board of Canada. Right. But giving artists, you know, decent amount of money and enough time and bu- budget to do your own thing. But here's our story. And so we did it for the pilot. And uh, I, I remember uh, one of the executives from YTV popping in because it was all within like a block of each other. So, you know, you see everyone at lunch, they come by, you know, all this. And um, Michelle came by to see what's happening. And Cindy Lauper is playing loud on the stereo. And there was so much scrap paper on the floor. I never cleaned up. The scrap paper was up to my waist. You know, if somebody dropped a match in there, the whole thing would have gone. Yeah. Uh, But it was incredible. And we had the best time. We Mm. really had the best time. Uh, The cameraman, I had known the cameraman uh, at that point since I was 17 years old. You know, he was my cameraman way back when. And, you know, we just had a ball. And the pilot came together. Uh, did very, very well, surprisingly well. I mean, in all fairness, YTV promoted the hell out of it. And um, it aired on Dark Knight 3. I still got the poster somewhere. And that was on the Saturday. And on Monday, we had a deal for the series. Okay. Yeah. So then it would be, though, two more years uh, That's until right. 1997 that the show debuted. That's right, because... Yeah. Um, YTV had bought so many shows. This is the big boom of animation. They had shows on their shelf that had never been aired. So they said, yeah, we're going to take it, but you have to wait two years. So I went back to Nelvana. Oh, okay. And, For those two years. Yeah, yeah. And I just sort of hung out and tried to avoid doing anything. You know. Mm-hmm. So I guess it debuted, I guess, on Dark Knight 5, which was two years later. What was happening in those sort of two years between? Was the show in production? No. Was no. animation going forward or no? There, there was nothing happening. Um, the show premiered, okay, so it would have been Halloween. What had happened is when we knew it was going to happen, we started writing scripts well in advance. You know, like right, I'd, yeah. I'd go home and I'd, you know, I'd sit there and I'd write scripts. I'd write stuff at lunchtime. You know, anytime I had a free moment, I was writing all this stuff. Um at that time, they brought in our executive story editor, Simon Muntner. May he rest in peace. See, all, the gang, aside from John, everybody's gone. You know, so Jeez, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people say, why don't you do it again? And, well, the team's gone. You know, and Jimmy, who was uh, Larry and Danny, they're 20 years older. They can't operate the puppets. So we're going to have a puppet with a different voice. And, you know, right, yeah, yeah. You know, so. it's like Charlie Brown. They get a new kid and he's got a different voice. And it's weird. It's not quite the same. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, why I don't want to do it again. But, um, yeah, so we were gearing up. And then once we knew that we had all the financing together, and John called me. And he said, Steve, we got our financing. And I was at Nelvana. And I literally was dancing down the down the hallway. <laughs> like, yeah, I got it. It's great. You know, because um, I hated my boss. And, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, fuck you. you know, I got had bosses like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he became the basis for Maurice the Maggot. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you started off with this vision of it being sort of the, the Ken Burns style, yeah. you know, animation that way. Right. But then it changed in that time, I guess, to something that was more fully animated. Yes. It, it went to, oh, I forget the name of the company. Uh, it went to Funbag in Ottawa. Now, what had happened, and this is a mistake that a lot of young people make, and I'm, I was incredibly guilty of this. I promised my buddies we were going to do it together. 
Oh, okay. You know, we're going to start our own studio. We're going to, you know, all this stuff. And everybody was in. And then the money men, right? It's the golden rule. Who, who He who has the gold gold rules. Yeah. Yeah. They said, no, we're going to fun bag animation. I said, no, we're not. We're starting our own studio here. They said, no, we're going to fun bag animation in Ottawa. I said, no, we're not. And they didn't tie me up, but they <laughs> took me. It was like, get in the van. We're going to Ottawa. Okay. Really? Yeah, we'll fly you home tonight. You're going to Ottawa this morning. Okay. So we went to Funbag, and I didn't want to be there. And they knew I didn't want to be there. And they brought out their guys. And there were a couple guys I went to college with. You know, was, hey, Scott, how you doing? It's great to see Scott. You know, okay. And there's Kathy. And it's Scott and Kathy. Hey, it's great. And then they brought out these guys with their portfolios. And their portfolios were really, really good. You know, if they were in Toronto, I would have no problem working with these people. Right. And then I thought, you know, when I was working on some shows in Nelvana, we're doing them for U.S. studios. And the Americans were always saying, if you were any good, you'd be down here in L.A. And we're going, we are good. And here's the same thing. Here's some guys in Ottawa. And yeah, they're good. So I'm working with them. And actually, we've stayed friends, you know, like uh, friends on a daily basis, emailing uh, 20 years, 25 years later, you know, so they're good people out there. And that's what happened. You know, the, the money men said, you can't do it here in Toronto. We need the tax credits for Ottawa to make it fly. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, right. it's all tax credits. And we said, I said, okay, you know, and there are still people today in Toronto who uh, have never forgiven me for that. But it, yeah, it wasn't my fault. Well, I promised them I shouldn't have promised them. Well, I mean, yeah. that's the showbiz, I guess, right? So It's they're... showbiz. You know, you get excited. You want you want to work with your friends. And sometimes you have to meet new friends. Speaking of money, I base a lot of my questions here from a few articles I found on Playback Magazine. Yeah. Uh, from Ancient years stuff. past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one uh, article actually mentioned that every episode had a budget of $350,000. Season and one. Season one. Season okay. one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Season one. Yeah. Um, I was wondering for, you know, for people at home who may not be familiar with how, you know, budgets for animation works. Um, but where does that money go? How is that money sort of split up? Well, it doesn't go to me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, how, the, the budgets are big, you know, and I, I'd sort of look at the budget. John would make the budget. Right. And because he's the money guy. And I'd sort of look at it and he'd say, sign here, I sign here. And I get my check. Um, a lot of it, I, I can't even say half, but a lot of it goes to Korea. For the, for the animation, the ink and paint. Well, they didn't ink and paint, they digitally ink and painted it. So okay, there, right. there are no cells from Freaky Stories. The backgrounds were painted and then they'd composite everything together and send it back. So... A big, big, big chunk went there. Um, a big chunk went to Funbag in Ottawa because they did all the, they were in charge of the storyboarding, the layout, the design, and that was big. Um, there was money for the writers. We were paying the writers quite well. Uh, money for the music. And again, uh, just like I had my vision of uh, the artists, I was able to follow through with that on the writers where we had, it was really incredible. My door was open. If you wanted to pitch, if you were coming out of school and you wanted to pitch a show, come on in, pitch it. If it's good, great. You know, you're in. You know, if if the final story was good, you get another assignment. You know, if it, if it wasn't, you know, thank you very much. But we had people who started their careers on freaky stories, you know, who are doing very successful in animation today. We had a number of composers. Um, we had our main two composers, Glenn Morley and Marvin Dolgay of Timbre Music. And right. they put the call out to composers and we would have like 30 40 composers a year because we were doing 
uh, how many episodes? There were 13 times 4. That comes so to... I believe in total there were 140, store, uh, 140 shorts created throughout the entire yeah, sort of three the seasons. Yeah, the entire run. So yeah. we, must have, we must have used 30 or 40 different composers, which, which is a lot for a TV series. And at the end of one of the seasons, they had a party and there was uh, one guy, Louis Applebaum, who was like the dean of the Canadian composers. He had won an Academy Award for something. And we were chatting and he says, you have given so many people their first big break. And I, said, I did nothing. <laughs> you know, like, they gave everybody the first break. Uh, but Freaky, there's a lot of people who uh, owe their careers mm. to Freaky, which is quite nice. Yeah, it's a nice yeah. bit of legacy for the show to yeah. think about. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right, so maybe let's pivot a bit to production of the sure. show. Um, you had mentioned uh, sort of, you know, going crazy writing scripts and stuff yeah. and writing so much down. But I mean, each script uh, starts out with a very similar line. Yes. It, it happened to a friend of a friend of mine. That's right. I was wearing... Where did that central kind of writing bit come from? Freaky stories. See, originally I decided I'm going to make a short. Mm -hmm. One short in, in that Ken Burns style. What am I going to do? So I start, I, I'm going to do a fairy tale, a folk tale. And um, so, okay, that Disney guy did Snow White. He did, he did all the good ones. So I started researching folk tales from around the world, and they're mm -hmm. all incredibly violent. Because yeah, <laughs> okay, what is like you go to the Lithuanian folk tales? They're crazy, uh, and the purpose of all these fairy tales and folk tales is to warn kids. You know, if you if your mother says, "Don't go in the woods because there's a bad man in the woods," you don't care, right? Yeah, he's not going to catch me. There's a witch in the woods. Oh. And she's going to eat you. Oh, right. Then the kid doesn't go in the woods. So I thought, okay, what's the equivalent? You know, fairy tale starts off once upon a time. What's mm -hmm. the equivalent modern day? And it came up urban legends. Right. And the purpose of urban legends is the same thing. You know, don't go making out at uh, lovers, whatever, because there's the killer. Lovers with the, point. That yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. The killer with the hook. Right. You know. So suddenly I had that and I started, this is a true story. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. This is a true story. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine, Murray, the landlord of my old apartment in the Pittman building on 12th Street. And I wrote the story of the hook. And that was the first short that I made. And then somebody, somebody saw it and said, wow, you should do a TV series. I said, wow, I should do a TV series, you know. And that's how it happened. Right. And actually, I was wondering if we could talk about one very special um, episode, which I believe was the w one of the styles I've one of the episodes that was done in the style of Ken Burns is Spiders and the Hairdo. Yes. Uh, which was narrated by Alison Court, who listeners yes. might know as Jubilee from X-Men, yeah. uh, Lydia from Beetlejuice and Lunette from Big Comfy Couch. Um, and a very, very nice lady. Yes. And she's yeah. actually she actually seems to interact with puppets a lot, too. Yes, she does. So, for some crazy reason. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. she's probably uh, really into the idea of uh, mm -hmm. sort of Larry DeBug and Maurice the Maggot. Yeah. But, you know, how did that what was the reaction to that specific episode? Because I've seen people talk about it a lot online. Everyone says, I always remember the one yeah. about the spiders and the haircut. Well, the, the thing about it is, where is it? Here it is. The art was done by Glenn Hansen, okay, who is a genius. I don't know if you can see it. Um, and it was done in pencil crayon. It's all, The whole thing was done in pencil crayons, and he sort of wore his fingers down to little stubs. Um, and I'd known Glenn for a number of years, and the guy is truly a genius. And I said, okay, here's the story. And he said, I want to rewrite it. I said, rewrite okay. it you know so he he added his touches and he said i want a storyboard and i said do what you want you know here's the money go and he did it and he brought back this art and all the art was this big and it's all beautiful every piece and i remember john john the cameraman who was you know he he used to be a roadie for the guess who way back way you know he he was sort of he was a cool guy and he walks in to you know he's holding the art and usually when he walks into where i'm working it's like 
you fucking bastard. He once took an exacto knife and chased me around a room because I had messed something up with the art. And he walks okay. in. And as soon as John walks in with the art, I'm terrified. He goes, Steve, this is exquisite. Hmm. It's like, yes, it is. Right. And we knew we had something special. And that thing really resonates with people. And that's all Glenn. Yeah. 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 yeah Glenn and Allison and the score and, and everything was, was fantastic on that. This is a true story. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. <laughs> Her name was Cindy. Not only was she head cheerleader, class of 63, dating the captain of the football team and the prettiest girl at Small Town High, but she had the biggest, blondest, baddest beehive hairdo anyone had ever seen. And every other girl at Small Town High was green with envy. Yeah, Cindy's life was pretty much perfect. Or so everyone thought. You see, keeping a beehive looking perfect was hard work. But the real problem was that Cindy was lazy. And instead of washing her hair and resetting it from scratch, she'd just shellac it with a complicated mixture of plutonium hydroxide and glue, and then seal it all with a little hairspray. I mean, to me, it kind of combines itself into like the, the perfect example of what a freaky story short was. Yeah, Just like yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely horrifying and like, you know, you know, spine tingling makes you kind of feel, but like it's so funny and, and beautifully drawn and yeah, has yeah, a good yeah. message at the end of it too, which is, you know, wash your hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Exactly. Well, they were little um, morality plays. Mm -hmm. They were all morality plays. I mean, we've talked about them a little bit before, but Larry DeBug and yeah. Maurice and Maggot. Um, could you just walk me through, what was the production process like of creating the puppets themselves? For the pilot, the the one where Larry's at the zoo, you know, and there's yeah, yeah. no Maurice. Uh, originally, there was just Larry and he was going to be, um, he was going to be Rod Serling. That was the, the um, live action equal. Uh, the reason we made him a bug is that a bugs live around people and they overhear stuff. And we were going to have him every episode. He'd go somewhere else and be relating the story. Oh, okay. Um, and that didn't work for a number of reasons. As for the creation, we had the name. And I had sort of cobbled together this really shitty puppet. Let me just get it. I've still got his head. This was the original oh, wow. Larry the Bug that I had sewn <laughs> myself. And, and the mouth doesn't work. It's just crappy. It's in incredibly crappy. So we pitched that. One of my buddies, uh, Ted Bastine, who's a brilliant caricaturist, um, when I was producing Magic School Bus... The director was uh, Larry Jacobs, very, very nice guy, talented director, uh, real character. And I said, Ted, make it look like Larry, right? And he drew a caricature of Larry as a bug, right? Just, and he colored it in and uh, we went, we showed it to Larry. I said, Larry, it's you. He says, fuck off. It doesn't look like me at all. I said, yes, it's exactly <laughs> you. And... Um, he goes, fuck you, you know, and so we knew we had mm -hmm. it perfect. Uh, and when we had the money for the uh, for the pilot, we took it to an effects house. And these were people who made monsters for movies. Nobody had really done uh, a monster realistic puppet for a kid's show before. So they sculpt it and we look at it and it's fantastic. And John comes by and the people from YTV and it looks incredible. And they make the animatronics and they cast it in foam and we hire Jimmy Rankin to be the puppeteer and everything's great and we get it all together. And I think the day before we got on the set, you know, Jimmy comes down to the studio and we've got the puppet and Jim goes to put his head in, his hand into it. And the head is Yo. this big, right? Yeah. With the animatronics in it. Right. There's no room for Jim to get a finger into that thing. Oh, no. We didn't measure it. Oh, no. Right. And John looks at me and I look at John and we're looking at a $15,000 puppet that isn't going to work. Wow. So we said, 
who's got a smaller hand? <laughs> right? Who's a puppeteer <laughs> with a smaller hand? And they called in another puppeteer who showed up, you know, mm-hmm. and he just moved two fingers. And if you notice, if you ever go back and see that episode, we're cutting from here to there to there to there in the middle of lines. We shot it three or four times from different angles because the puppet kept breaking down and he couldn't get a performance out of it. So to get any sort of performance, uh, and then Judy Babcock, the editor, she spent, I don't know how long just cutting these little snippets together into a coherent story. And then, so we took this puppet and I've got it in the other room, but basically it was trashed. $15,000 back then. It's like buying a car, driving it off the new car lot and into a tree, right? It was gone, you know? So then when we got the go-ahead for the show, we hired Jim and we knew we were doing Maurice the Maggot. We hired Danny. We took them into the effects shop. They made a cast of their arms. They built the puppet around their arms. So, I mean, speaking of Maurice, when did Maurice's uh, character start coming to play? When did you decide you needed a foil? Well, after we did the pilot and Larry's just talking to the audience, there's not much he can do. He's just talking to the audience. And the thing about puppets is puppets are very, very difficult to get a performance out of. Even if it's a hand puppet, you know, the Muppets, well, they do that day in, day out for 50 years. So they know what they're doing. But it was difficult to get a performance. We needed a sidekick. I had left my job at the other studio hated my boss and I said to Ted who did the caricature of uh, Larry I said draw so and so as a slime dripping (laughs) maggot right like this and everybody laughed and uh, we said we better lose the goatee you know (laughs) better lose the goatee we can't name him his real name Uh, so we what alliteration Maurice the maggot and uh, so there's a painting somewhere that Ted had done of Maurice, and it looks exactly like that. And they sculpted it, and we'd go down, you know, and everybody was laughing. The lawyers actually knew who I had based the character on. Doesn't look like him, doesn't have his personality, doesn't have the same name. But okay. they compared the maggot to his picture in a oh, trade okay. publication to make sure that we wouldn't get sued. So, so I guess when you see in some shows where it says, uh, what's the disclaimer? Um, the yeah. characters in the show may not resemble or may resemble yeah. certain people, but yeah. they don't. So yeah, my ex boss <laughs> has eyes, but that was the gotcha. philosophy be- behind Maurice. He doesn't know he doesn't have eyes. He doesn't know he doesn't have arms. So there was a couple episodes where he'd be wearing a backpack and the backpack right, yeah. has straps cause he doesn't know, <laughs> you know, or he had, he had, like uh, a string with mittens, right? Because he doesn't know he doesn't have heads. So, <laughs> and, and it was really funny. Right when we finished the show, you know, three seasons of this thing, we finished this thing. We're packing Maurice away for the last time. And I looked at it and I said, damn it. You know what we forgot? We never made dentures. He should have had these incredible grinning dentures. Oh. Right? Because that, you know, then we could do a, a reaction shot with this smile. And we yeah. never did that. You know, it's like, it would have cost nothing to do, would have added so much. You know, it's one of those things, you know, you're working with it day yeah. in, day out, and you, you miss out on that sort of stuff. Hmm. I guess a question I had with Maurice, and, and, and this was sort of for me as a kid, I always liked Larry. Yeah. Larry was always fine for me when I was yeah. a kid watching the show, but Maurice. Because of the slime, because yes. of the sort of detritus on him, and I guess you have some slime there. Yes. Mm. Um, did you ever get any reactions from people where women. it's like... Women! It's too much, yeah? No, the women always ask about the maggot. I mean, back mm. in the day, it's like, that's a pretty disgusting maggot you have there. And I say, why does nobody ever ask about the bug? Everybody asks about uh, the maggot. And it must have been the slime. Could have been the slime. Could have been like maybe Larry's big eyes or something. Maybe they kind of like humanize him a little bit. But there's something about a maggot that just yeah people out, I guess. But I he was know. charming. Yeah. He, he was, you know, like we, we decided he was going to be this very upbeat, very charming, can-do kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 
Yeah. Well, hello again. Us here at Freaky Stories. Uh, we got some real cool ones here for you. Maurice, what are you doing? Oh, uh, I went to the dentist and my filling's picking up radio. Yeah? Cesspool. Yeah. A new band from Texas. Hot sound. <sighs> they said, we'll give you a sidekick. It'll make life easy. Um, you talked a little bit before about the set of yeah. uh, Freaky Stories, and the set plays a huge role in, yeah. in sort of the connective tissue between the stories that you have in the show. I was wondering, could you sort of walk me through what that set looked like and, and maybe a bit about how you built it? There were three sets. Mm-hmm. There was the set you see at the beginning where it's the, uh, the diner, the exterior of the diner, and we built the backgrounds and we built the surrounding street. So there was the exterior, which was one, ooh, one-eighteenth scale. And then there was the actual diner itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what had happened is the summer before we were going to do the show, my wife and I went off to research diners. So we went on Diner Tour USA. We left the kids with the in-laws and we drove New York State, Maine, Vermont, you know, going from diner to diner to diner to diner, looking for the perfect diner. And in Castleton, Vermont, we stopped at the Bird's Eye Diner and walked in. I said, this is the place. And I mean, it was spotless. It was immaculate. It was a 1940s diner. Uh, and the owner was this hip young guy. And I said, listen, we're doing a TV show in Canada. We want to replicate this. And I said, can I photograph it? And uh, he says, yeah, go ahead. And he let me crawl all over that place. And I, you know, shooting rolls of film, 35 millimeter film. I must have shot five or six rolls of film. Um, And then I took the rolls to the, again, to Ted, Ted Bastine, who was my production designer, he designed all the sets and uh, the set decorators and all this. And we built, we replicated the inside of the Bird's Eye Diner or a chunk of the Bird's Eye Diner. Um, And the funny thing is that occasionally I'll come across pictures from Diner Tour USA and it's like, I don't remember this part of the set. This wasn't part of the set. So we had the miniature set we had the live action set which, that we only used in season one and the miniature set in season one. And then we had the 18 to one where everything was 18 times bigger because we figured that if a cockroach is this big, you know, that the arm. So we built the set to scale um, and we built a toaster. Uh, we built the napkin holder and the knife and fork. Remember there being uh, a ketchup bottle, I the think. The ketchup bottle. Yeah. Uh, the mustard bottle. And there was the outlet. Okay. The electrical outlet that they would use as a door sometimes. And I remember one day uh, walking onto the set when it was all under construction. And there was this huge chrome Art Deco thing. And I said, what's that? Because it had appeared overnight. And uh, the props guy said, it's the toaster. And he had this Art Deco toaster (laughs) that they had drafted. Like, he bought it. It's an old prop. But they had drafted it, and they had built this thing and covered it in, like, aluminum or something overnight. And there it was. And the other thing you had to remember is the puppet sets are built six feet off the ground so the puppeteers can walk around upright. So, you know, you're walking around and everything is like way up in the air. So it was really, really neat. Um, Season one, we would start every day shooting the exterior of the diner, which meant that we would flood this big soundstage with mist. Yeah. You know, to get the the atmosphere right. So we have the mist, the camera moves in, blah, blah, blah. We had whatever was going on on the exterior. Uh, Then we would go to the live action set. We'd shoot all our live action. And then we'd shoot the puppet stuff afterwards. For seasons two and three, we had enough stock footage of the exterior. We had enough. So uh, those things were only used in season, only photographed in season one. Mm -hmm. And on that big set, 
um, there are two little details I want to go into because there's two Which photographs. Big set? Which big set? The, the, the one with this 118 set. Yeah, okay. Because there are two photographs that are in there. Yeah. Uh, one is of two chefs and one's okay. a little girl. Yes. One of the chefs look, looks a little bit like you. That is me. And who's the other person in that photo? Ted. It's Ted's Ted. diner. <laughs> there you yeah, go. Yeah, Ted Bastine, Ted's diner. Uh, it, it was actually funny. My mother-in-law was was for some reason was saying Steve likes my pie so much he named the diner in his show Lee's Diner her, na- her name is Lee and I said no it's Ted's <laughs> Diner she says it's Lee's Diner it's, it's so freaky comes on Ted's Diner oh you know? <laughs> but yeah it was Ted's Diner and uh we shot that um Ted is quite tall but I actually sort of we're leaning against the wall and I scooched right, yeah. down and I remember uh, friends were all sort of heckling as we were taking these pictures. <laughs> and the little girl, what had happened is, this is actually funny. Uh, Kellogg's Pop-Tarts approached us and they said, we would like to do a promotion with Freaky Stories. And I'm at this meeting with the brass from Kellogg's and they're telling us, you know, and they want to have a contest and, you know, the winner can be... And I said... You realize the spokesvermin are a cockroach and a maggot selling your food product. Yes, yes, we know. I said, okay, we're cool. (laughs) Um, And they sent us some money. Uh, I designed some T-shirts that were really cool T-shirts. And they sent us cases of them. And what would happen is during Freaky Stories, if you called, you phoned a number, they'd take your name and number, they'd send you a T-shirt which was really cool. And these t-shirts were popping up everywhere. Uh, and I had a case of them at home and it was really funny because neighbors would, uh, come Steve, uh, my son <laughs> would like a t-shirt. Yeah, sure. What size? Uh, extra, extra large. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> you know? And I, I think I've got two of them left, but they're really, really cool shirts. I, I never wear them. Um, and the, what happened was of all the people who won the shirts, this little girl won the grand prize, which Kellogg's had told her would be a visit to the set and you can appear in Freaky Stories. Okay. Right? And it's like, how are we going to get her to appear? Because this is like season two or season three, and we don't have the live action set anymore. We can't afford to bring it out. Right? So how do we get her in? And uh, somebody could have been me said why don't we just stick her picture on the set you know and she came down to the set and they were really nice people uh from northern ontario i think the family had never been on a plane before and they flew them in you know and we had a really nice time we gave her artwork and stuff and took a million pictures with larry and maurice and uh, yeah yeah and that was that <laughs> you know it's a really interesting easter egg there yeah I like that. Those little, little little details on the set have like sort of a, a nice story behind it. Well, I like, I like to think that she's grown up now, you know, and sometimes she looks at freaky stories and says, that's me. I was on the show. You know? <laughs> Great. Um, so I wanted to pivot into something a bit different to talk about. And, sure. and this is a, a pivotal part of the show, too, is, is puppetry. Yes. You know, um, I was just wondering, I was hoping you could talk about um, sort of and also with your work with Puppets Cool um, yeah. that we had talked about previously, too. But why is it that puppets seem to resonate with people in terms of being able to, you know, hear a story from a puppet and have that resonate from resonate with you or be able to use a puppet to deliver a message to a kid? What is it about puppetry and that makes it an effective communication tool for storytelling? Well, Rod Serling, going back to the great master, always mm-hmm. said that a Martian can say something that a Republican or a Democrat can't. And that's going back to 1960. So if you have a fanciful creature, that creature, it's not in your face as much because it's just a puppet. You know, so you can get away with stuff that you can't, uh, you can't do in live action. You know, um, animation, puppetry, all this stuff is... They're, they're tremendously powerful mediums that are completely squandered in North America, seen as uh, kiddie stuff. You know, in Europe, where they get this stuff, it's seen as adult um, content, you know, and they do some really, really fantastic stuff there. But here in North America, it's like, meh, 
you know, it's like mm. kitty stuff. Let's sell, let's sell cereal. Well, I can't do that anymore. Let's sell toys, you know, and base it on a cartoon show. My philosophy is really simple and it applies to animation as well. It's part of the root mm-hmm. of freaky stories. Animation and puppetry suck. Okay. They really, really suck badly. Um, here we have these incredible mediums you can do anything with and they're squandered. Right. I, I mean, if you're talking about puppetry, you have two choices. You have the uh, the infantile crap, which no, thank you. I want nothing to do with it. And then you get the incredibly pretentious stuff that and now children we're going to relate the tale of the farmer and his egg, you know, or, or you know, right. I mean, you've seen it. I've seen it. And. So when I go and I do my workshops for kids or even freaky stories, uh, my stuff is a mixture of Groucho Marx, Steve Martin, um, a lot of a lot of adult humor, and and the teachers love it, you know, because I, I'm the only one who doesn't talk down to the kids, and the teachers say. You know, uh, I don't know if the kids understood everything. And I said, that's fine. You know, maybe they'll think back in 10 years and they'll get it then. When, um, when, um, we, were, when we were doing freaky stories at the very beginning and we were submitting the scripts to YTV. Do you remember the one with the, uh, the detective and the flying cars and the robots? I do, yeah. yeah. The sort of Art Deco. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Future yeah. Art Deco kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he refers to coffee as Java. Yeah. And Merv Stone at YTV said, comes with the script circled. He said, they won't know what it means. And I said, and one kid will look it up and then we win. (laughs) Right. I want one kid to expand their vocabulary. That's all I want. This is a true story. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. Joe was a traveling salesman. His territory covered most of the Omega sector. He used to drive around hawking what he called quality merchandise, time store stuff, grab jigs and time coders. You know, like, aim high. Don't talk down to kids. Um, I was actually watching a masterclass with Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day, and he was talking about kids are the toughest audience because, you know, he has to lose 90% of his vocabulary, Right. And I'm sitting there saying, why do you have to lose? You know, you can use your vocabulary, explain the word and then move on. Right. Right, Like educate the kid. Right. So that's, yeah. Finally, moving into this final stretch of things, I I wanted to just pivot a bit and talk about the reaction uh, to the show at the time. Um, I guess when the show first started airing, what were you hearing from people like in your immediate family, your friends? What did they think of the show? Well, um, episode one, uh, which was the one where the kid carries the old lady's groceries home and she's going to give him a tip and he's sitting there eating mixed nuts. Yeah. Right. Um, so that thing airs, my sister phones me and she says, that's our grandmother. I said, no, it's not. She says, look at it. I said, oh my God. Cause I wrote that and it was, it's my grandmother. Right. right. Um, but I went around to family members, you know, uh, and asked them, uh, can I use this story about you in the show? Right. And they'd say yes. Invariably, they said yes. And I changed all the names and the show would air. And like you could go one, two, three. The phone would ring and it would be aunt so and so you know, to compliment me on the story. Right. Yeah, it was really quite funny that everybody knew what was going on. Um, and I, I come from a large and wacky family. So, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and it was better when the people were dead. You know, you can te- you can get into the juicy right. stuff because they're dead and they can't do anything to you. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's there's three seasons of the show, yeah. you know, 35 episodes total, you know, four myths on average per episode. Yeah. I mean, that's 140 short cartoons that you yes. produced and, yeah. you know, and, and, and put out there. I put out I mean, more, I produced more animated shorts than anybody yeah. else in this country ever. 
I mean, what do you think about that sort of looking back on it as like a kind of a, a feat of animation? What do you think about that? It was the best film school. You, you know, I had to make four different movies a week. Mm-hmm. Had to write them. Well, I didn't write them all, but wrote them, had to produce them, had to direct them. There was an animation director, but I had to go over everything, you know, um, had to, and it all came together in the editing. And we had this great machine going where, um, where things were working really, really well. And if something didn't work well, uh, we knew how to fix it. There was one episode, this was in the third season, and it's the one where the guy meets a girl, goes up to her place. They're going to go out on a date. She's getting ready. He throws a ball. Her dog jumps off the balcony. After, oh, you know. okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not a great story. And the script was okay. And the storyboard was okay. And the animation was okay. Mm-hmm. The music was okay. And the sound effects were okay. Everything's fine. We put it together in the mix, and somehow there's a little thing in the music, and the guy, he's going up to her apartment, mm-hmm. and he turns to the camera, and he winks, and there's that ding, you know, and all this. And suddenly, I said, stop. We have a recipe for date rape. Right. 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 And thank goodness John Dalmage wasn't in the building. I said, Let's start taking this apart. We can't change the animation. We can't change the narration. But we start, you know, we had to diffuse this situation because it was completely innocent. Everything had been innocent. It's a kid's show. But the way it came together, the nuances, all innocent, bang, it was bad. And we had to start pulling stuff out and shifting things. And we were able to do it in the mix and save the show because... I, you know, it, it goes to YTV next week, you know, okay. we, with yeah. no chance to re-edit the thing. So, so I mean, like the, these short four minute things, I mean, there, there's so many complexities to how the story can be put together within post and everything. So yeah, well, there were four mini movies a week. Yeah. 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 So it was very, very complicated. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that story got sort of re-edited and stuff <laughs> in the end. Yeah, yeah. The only one we ever had a complaint on was the one with um, the diet pill, where there's the... Oh, the the sponge diet pill kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and YTV got a lot of complaints about that, and I don't think I wrote it, Uh, but we were writing about the beauty myth. We were were tackling tackling social issues in sort of a, a funny way. Maybe we should have thought about it more. Uh, but I remember we were in a mix for a different episode and my phone rings and it's a mother and she called YTV and she demanded to talk to the person in charge and they gave her my phone number and we stopped the mix. We put her on speakerphone and I had my crew with me Yeah. and I, I said, okay, what are your issues? And we talked through the story. You know, we, we had, we were the people who made it and we talked about it and we discussed it with the lady and I said, we understand your point. This was our intention, and we think we communicated it, uh, but we will never do it again, right? And you have my personal number, and at any time you want to call, if you have an issue, call me directly. My, you know, we're, we're here, and we want to listen to you. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of it. YTV was cool, and we were cool, and, you know. But I, I guess don't those think- are the... Those are the sensitivities of working in kids TV, I guess, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But then again, we weren't we weren't approaching it as kids TV. You know, we it was all. Um, <clears throat> one of my rules was if you were writing kids TV, you weren't writing for us. Right. Okay. Yeah. So because I had seen enough bad kids TV, comes back <laughs> to animation sucks. Um, so anyone who was writing that stuff wasn't writing for us. She'd do anything to get the satin sash, but mostly she'd die. So, you know, three seasons, 140 short cartoons. Yeah. Um, why did it end? Uh, the distributor couldn't sell it. I, I mean, oh. it was wherever they sold it, it was doing great. But, 
you had some guys who uh distributors are really arrogant you know um the only par- parallel i can draw is my brother-in-law is a huge baseball fan he can tell you about a baseball thing and you want to go see a baseball game right i couldn't care less if i was trying to sell you a ticket to a baseball game that's the last thing in the world you would do right so if you have a guy who sees this show as product right no recurring characters it's kind of weird you know cockroach and a maggot they didn't know how to sell it and i said take me with you no we can sell it you know and they didn't sell it and they said we got two and three quarter seasons it wasn't a full third season so uh you know it's kind of nice going into your last season knowing there's not going to be another one um what I did is for the last episode, I said, I'm writing it. And I went to the guys in, in Ottawa at Funbag, And I said, um, take it easy on the two episodes before the last one, because we're putting everything into the last one. And the last episode, that's the one with uh, the lodger. That uh, for me, that was the ultimate freaky story. This is a true story. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. It was a night in December in the year of our Lord, 1888. While terror haunted the streets of our town, the unwary met a grim fate. The footsteps of doom rang down cobblestone streets, through snow and through sleet and through rain. As lone newsboy shouted to rare passerby, Old Jackie has stricken again! So we, we've talked about the legacy of the show a little bit before this. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, to you, what do you think is the sort of legacy of, of freaky stories? It's people your age, you know, young kids. When, when I go into schools, you know, and people know my bio, teachers will come over to me and say, wow, you did freaky stories. Wow. You know, and, <laughs> and we, and the kids say, what's that? And I say, greatest show ever. You missed it, sucker. Um, and the teachers will agree, greatest show ever. Uh, the legacy, I never saw a dime. You know, the distributors never, any of the people who created shows back then, we never saw anything. Um, okay. We were all ripped off. Um, you know, so I've sort of got mixed feelings towards it. Uh, I, I stuck around in the business for another, another five, 10 years, you know, each year, my income getting less and less because your hair goes gray and the young people say, well, you're not as cool as you used to be, Steve. And it's like, really, you know, and suddenly you're not making any money. So I reinvented myself doing my puppet school, uh, thing. Um, and I look back on, it was a great time, but it's a long time ago. And then I, the, the industry has changed too where, you know, somebody like you or me could walk into any broadcaster and say, I have an idea for a show, right? And they would hear you out. And chances are it's not going to happen. But, you know, that one one hundredth percent of a chance that it does happen, that's amazing. You know, that it can happen. Today it can't happen. You know, through vertical integra- vertical integration, um, the broadcasters are owned by toy companies that own studios. And if they're not right, shilling yeah. a product to little kids, if they're not selling that plastic, uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, there's a platform on YouTube, I guess, things like that, where people can there's sort of no do money. their own thing. There's no money. Eh, you were talking true. about Allison Court. Allison and I put together this show. It's on YouTube called Brain Eating Zombie Babies. I think I saw that, yeah. Yeah, and it's a pretty bad thing. Um, But it went nowhere. And I realized that you have to be very young and very cute to be a success on YouTube. I'm neither young or cute, so why waste my time? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, for me, I'll I'll always have at least my memories of, you know, uh, freaky stories, watching the show on rerun, you know, constantly being freaked out by Maurice. Yeah. And, I mean, for me, that's, that's... like uh, these 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 
these memories that are never going to go away of this freaky maggot and his bug friend well, are always going to be with me. So that was the thing. Like we had a lot of fights, you know, mm-hmm. me and and the distributor and YTV, the money people. Not YTV so much. They were they were really good. The money people were. Um, it's just a show. It's just product. And I was going no, you know whatever episode we were working on whatever story somebody somewhere is going to come to me in 25 years and they're going to say that was the best story ever and i have a responsibility to that person because this is their childhood and i'm making their childhood for them and i've had so many people that's what people say to me freaky stories was my childhood you know or we've had people come to the house you know friends of my kids uh friends of my nieces and nephews and they know I did Freaky and I bring down Maurice the Maggot. And there's so many pictures of happy people your age with Maurice on their arm with this big grin. You know, here's me and Maurice the Maggot. <laughs> you know, uh, and it means a lot to people. You know, and for me, I'm, I'm removed from it. You know, it, it took me 10 years to get it on the air. Uh, we were trying to do our best. You know, we really tried. And then at the end, there was no back end for me. So I was like. You know, so uh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, really glad I did it. Uh, I love doing it. It was a lot of fun, but it, it's it's very strange to be on the other side of it. You know, mm-hmm. what do you do when all your dreams come true? All my dreams came true, you know. And what you discover afterwards is the important stuff is not the dream, not what you did, but your family and your friends and the people you did it with it. Hmm. Well, with that, Steve Schneer, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to the Mr. TV Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Also check out the Mr. TV Twitter account at Mr.TVPodcast where we post trivia from each episode. Until next time, stay glued to your TV.